Welcome to A History of the Inca. Episode 60, A Tale of Two Brothers. Hello everyone and welcome once again to A History of the Inca. I am your host, Nick Mashinsky. A big thank you to Faye Watts, who recently signed up for Patreon to support the show. Faye has told me that she's not fully caught up with the show. She's on about episode 37 at the time of this recording. But any and all support will continue to fund the website after the podcast is over. I mean, that thing isn't free after all. Thank you once again, Faye, for your support. I also have a small favor to ask of all of you to review the podcast on whatever app you listen. Might I suggest five stars? I mean, I'm assuming if you are listening to this episode, then you've enjoyed the podcast so far. Why not give it a rating and review so others can enjoy it? Even though the show will be ending, it'll still be around for others to discover. So if you can take a few moments to just give a rating and review, that would be very appreciated. And yet another reminder to send me your questions about the show or the Inca by May 1st. I look forward to reading them. Now then, in the last episode we covered the new laws. The laws set forth by Charles V to give some protection to the indigenous population. It took away some privileges that the conquistadors and colonists had enjoyed up to this point. When the first viceroy of Peru tried to enforce the laws, he was met with strong opposition, which resulted in his death at the hands of an army led by Gonzalo Pizarro. But Gonzalo wasn't riding high for long, as Pedro de la Gasca soon showed up and ended the Pizarro brothers' presence in Peru. So we've taken the past few episodes to cover the civil wars, while we've mentioned the Inca in passing during this time period. Well, today we come back to the Inca and focus on the two brothers that ruled over the indigenous populations, one in exile and one as a figurehead. Enjoy. We first met Manco Inca and Paiulu all the way back in episode 45, Atahualpa and Huascar. Of course, as the name reveals, the two young Inca were not the stars of that episode. They were just too young for the opportunity to be raised up to take the fringe at the time of Wanakapak's death. But Manco Inca and Paiulu both did something that their two older siblings had not. They survived. We know Manco Inca and his people approached Pizarro as the latter marched to Cusco, and as a consequence, he was elevated to Sapa Inca. Paulu was under his brother and watched, likely with horror, as several male siblings were dispatched at the request of Manco Inca. When it was planned for the Inca to throw off the Spanish yoke, Paulu was sent to Koyasuyu to spread word of the rebellion and to join Manco Inca for the siege of Cusco. 
but he did not. He chose to stay with the Spanish. I have not come across any sources that give the exact details of why the Spanish picked Paulu as their figurehead once Manco Inca rebelled. But we can make some safe assumptions as to why he was chosen. Of course, being the son of Wanacapac was key. He was a direct descendant from the last undisputed ruler of the Andes. Secondly, he may have been one of the only sons of Wanacapac alive that the Spanish could get to. We just recalled how Manco Inca had eliminated several of his kin that he saw as competition. Paulu was seen as too young to dispatch at the time, so could it be that Paulu was the oldest male son of Wanacapac around? Quite possibly. But what was important was that Paulu could command native forces, and as we've seen in the past few episodes, he did just that. As we witnessed in episode 57, Vilcabamba, Paulu assisted Hernando and Gonzalo against native groups in Koyasuyu, and saved the Spanish as they nearly drowned in a river. Such acts earned Paulu high praise from the Spanish, yet some still questioned his loyalty. After all, he's an Inca. He must surely be biding his time until he joins his brother Manco Inca and rebels. But witnesses to Paulu's exploits backed up his record of service, and an account was actually presented to the king, giving Paulu a glowing review. And indeed, it must have been impressive, because the Inca received the Colcompata, a building on the hill leading up to Sacsayhuaman, offering a stunning view of Cusco and the valley below. But this was not all. Francisco Pizarro would give Paulu a repartimento in 1539. Unfortunately, Paulu was a target for Spanish ruffians who sought to beat him and take advantage of him and his property. As a result, a tutor was given to the Inca to teach him Spanish and to look after his interests. Despite this, Paulu would never learn to read, write, or speak Spanish though he did enjoy dressing up as a Spaniard. Paulu eventually converted to Christianity and was baptized in 1543, which led several others in the Inca nobility to convert as well. But this also had repercussions. Several mummies were handed over to Spanish authorities. Most of these were uncles and cousins of Paulu, which were promptly buried. However, the greatest of these mummies was that of Wanakapak. The former Sapa Inca and father to so many had his mummy turned over to the Spanish by order of one of his own sons. Back in Spain, the king acknowledged the Inca's service to the crown. As a result, in 1544, many of Paulu's illegitimate children were legitimized by the king. Just one year later, Paulu received a coat of arms, described as a black eagle rampart, sinople palms, a gold puma, two red snakes, an imperial red fringe, 
eight golden Jerusalem crosses and the inscription of Ave Maria. Unfortunately, an image of this coat of arms doesn't seem to exist, but now I know I won't be able to hear that song, Ave Maria, without thinking of Paulu. Not everything sat well with the indigenous population, though. Paulu's conversion to Christianity drove many away from the Inca in Cuzco. As we discussed way back in episode 17, the Inca Pantheon, many groups in the Andes recognized the sun as a deity. When the Inca established themselves in an area and told groups to raise Inti up to their main deity, this change was met with little resistance. So when Paulu decided to convert and abandon Inti, a lot of indigenous groups had a problem with this. In fact, many native groups began to look to Manco Inca as their rightful leader. And the Inca continued to keep busy in his resistance to Spanish rule. He took every chance he could to raid Spanish supplies, making their way towards Cuzco, taking whatever supplies he could. He also sought to foment rebellion and resistance in other areas, such as sending messages all the way into Chile, warning of a Spanish expedition and urging the groups in that area to hide their gold and silver. When the civil wars of the conquistadors really got going, the Inca were always a concern for the Spanish, but never top of mind. Almagro had sent a force before he marched to the coast, and Gonzalo certainly was concerned of an attack as he marched against Vila. But overall, the civil wars allowed the Inca to be left alone for some time. But that doesn't mean that the Inca were simply always raiding and plotting rebellion. They practiced some diplomacy as well. We saw this just a few episodes ago, when Manco Inca appealed to Don Diego Almagro to encourage the young man to come to Vilcabamba after his defeat. Later on, when Vela first arrived in the Andes, the Inca sent envoys to the Viceroy to try to establish relations, and really, it was the Chilenos who were in Vilcabamba who encouraged Manco Inca to reach out. The Chilenos in Vilcabamba had lived there for a few years in relative safety and comfort. The Inca had welcomed them as exiles for their crime of killing Pizarro and for their friendship of Don Diego Almagro, giving them servants and shelter. They were even cared for when they became ill, which was the case when the envoys intended for Vela were forced to retreat due to Gonzalo Pizarro being present in the area. One of the Chilenos fell ill, but was nursed back to health by order of the Inca. Of course, Manco Inca became best friends with the Chilenos, going horseback riding, eating and drinking together, and often playing a game called Heron, which was similar to horseshoes. It was during the conflict between Blasco Nunez Vela and Gonzalo Pizarro that a man made his way to Vilcabamba, claiming to be fleeing from the Spanish in Cusco. This man was welcomed, but was also carrying a message, and it wasn't for the Inca. 
the message was actually for the Spanish in Vilcabamba, and it hinted at a likely pardon for them if they managed to kill Manco Inca. After discussing it amongst themselves, they determined that was just what they would do. But the Spanish plot was overheard by one of their own servants. This woman went before Manco Inca to warn him of the plot and that his life was in danger. And of course, he ignored her. Yep, he dismissed her, dismissed her completely. She likely misunderstood what they were saying after all. A few days later, a majority of Vilcabamba was empty, as the Inca had sent his army towards Cusco after seeing Gonzalo marching his army towards the coast to take Lima. This is the planned attack on Cusco we saw taking shape in our previous episode. Manco Inca stayed behind, though. While his men were to raid the former capital, the Inca would stay and play Haran with his Spanish friends. The match went on with either Manco participating or acting as a judge. But a dispute arose, and that was when it happened. The Chilenos fell upon the Inca, stabbing him multiple times. But as quickly as they attacked, they turned and fled, running towards their horses, mounting up and galloping off. The Inca sent out runners, alerting the entirety of Vilcabamba of the betrayal of the Spaniards. Some came across the Inca army, which had been sent to Cusco, near Vitcos. They hadn't attacked the city outright but were able to capture a few prisoners on the roads. Meanwhile, the fugitives had missed the correct path in the dark of night and set up camp in a building they had found, believing they could continue their escape in the morning. However, as a few of them wandered outside of the building, the Inca army, which had just been informed of the situation, stumbled upon them and launched an attack. A few Spaniards attempted to hold their ground, but were overrun, while the rest retreated into the building. The retreat only prolonged the inevitable, though. The Inca piled wood at the entrances of the building and set the entire structure alight. The murderers inside the building and those who attempted to escape were killed. At the time of the Spaniard's death, Manco Inca was still alive. Yes, quite miraculously, Manco was able to outlive his attackers to hear that they had been hunted down and killed. But in the end, the damage was done. Just a few days later, Manco Inca joined his father Inti. Manco was one of four sons of Huanacapac to rule over Cusco. He outlived his two older brothers, Huascar and Atahualpa, after surviving the purges the two exacted on the Cusco population. Manco Inca saw an opportunity to establish himself as the leader of the Inca as the Spanish approached, and at first it seemed like a smart move on his part. But soon, the Inca chafed under the yoke of the Spanish and launched a daring rebellion. While the siege of Lima and Cusco would fail, Manco Inca established a base of resistance in Vilcabamba known to many today as the Neo-Inca state, which would last for decades to come. In comparison with other Inca rulers, we must note that Manco Inca was militarily competent. 
He did organize a large rebellion and attempted a siege of the capital, something that had not been attempted since the Chanka. This necessitated organizing large masses of troops, something he was able to do a few times. Yet Manco Inca could be diplomatic when it was called for, sending envoys and messages to the Spanish representatives and native allies further away in the Andes. For many years, Manco was made out to be a boogeyman by certain chroniclers, such as Sarmiento de Gamboa. Yet his son, Tito Cusiupanqui, describes his father as generous, idealistic, and slow to violent action. All of this makes one wonder, if the Spanish were not present, what would Manco Inca have been able to accomplish? At the time of Manco's death, Paulu was working with Gonzalo in fighting Vela, and was called upon again by Gonzalo to fight Pedro de la Gasca a few years later. By this time, Paulu had a Spanish brother-in-law by the name of Pedro de Bastinza, who was guarding the Capacnan for Gonzalo and had a contingent of native forces with him under the Inca captain Cayo Topa, who answered to Paulu. Apparently, Paulu had been exchanging messages with Gasca since the latter had landed in Tumbez. Thus, Cayotopo was well aware of Gasca's forces making their way along the road, and was ordered by Paulu to not inform their Spanish partners. This led to Bastinza and his forces being not only captured, but executed. It also accelerated the downfall of Gonzalo Pizarro, and secured Paulu's position as Gasca's administration eventually took over. Several years later, Paulu made preparations to once again travel to Vilcabamba. The purpose of this venture was to meet his nephew, Seri Tupac, to try to convince him to abandon Vilcabamba and to come out of the jungle. However, Paulu became sick on the way. The expedition would have to return to Cusco, but the Inca would die soon after. Since he died a Christian, he was given a Christian burial, and no mummy was created. Paulu was the last of Wanakapak's sons to rule Cusco, and the youngest of the four brothers to do so. What I find fascinating about Paulu was his ability to adapt where his brothers, and frankly many of his Spanish counterparts, could not. Unlike Atahualpa, Huascar, or Manco Inca, Paolo adjusted to life under Spanish rule. Although it could be argued, Huascar never got a chance to. To live with the Spanish, Paolo may have had to be more patient or submissive than Manco Inca had been, but it could have also been his leverage as one of the last, if not the last, of Wanakapak's sons living around the Cusco area. If the Spanish wanted control of the native population, they needed a figurehead that could fit the role, and Paulu ticked that box. But perhaps more impressive was the Inca's ability to always pick the winning side. Consider the chain of Spaniards he worked with, 
first Almagro, then Pizarro. Once the governor died, it was Don Diego Almagro. Then it was with Castro. When Gonzalo arrived in Cusco to defy the new laws, Paulo was on his side. But then Pedro de la Gasca arrived in Tumbes, and Paulo struck up a correspondence with him, betraying Gonzalo in the process. And who knows how many more times he executed acts such as the betrayal of Gonzalo over this time. For example, did Paulo purposely allow Hernando Pizarro to scale that mountain pass in pursuit of Almagro? We'll never know. Nevertheless, it is hard not to be impressed with Paulo's diplomatic skill and his ability to navigate such a complex landscape when so many of his contemporaries failed to do so. The entire city of Cusco mourned Thinca's death, both native and Spanish. Paulo's residence in Cusco, the Colcampata, was guarded by native forces to prevent anyone else from laying claim to it. This and other estates were left to his oldest son, Don Carlos. Meanwhile, there were many Spaniards who urged Gasca to confiscate the estates and to give them to Spanish colonists. But Gasca refused. He was still trying to draw out the Inca in Vilcabamba. The death of Manco Inca proved to be very unfortunate for the Inca in Vilcabamba. They were suddenly in a weak position right when the Spanish were weakened with their own civil war. Who knows what would have taken place if the death of Manco Inca did not occur. Instead, we will soon meet three of Manco Inca's sons as they rule Vilcabamba and attempt to hold off the Spanish militarily and diplomatically. Thus, Vilcabamba will be our focus for the rest of this podcast. Paulo's son, Don Carlos, would not be the same figurehead as his father. And though there were still Inca in Cusco, they were part of colonial Peru now. But don't worry, we will check in on them in the end.